0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 26 of Wake Up Call. We've got the panel back. You met them last week. Um, Their names are Archie, one of my other friends at McGill University, studying economics. And we've got Danny, Melda's friend from Leiden, also studying international relations. Although we are not very diverse in what we study, we are diverse in where we come from. And we all go to school in cities right now. Damn, that was a smooth transition, because that is going to be the topic of today's podcast. Cities, the ways we interact with them, what works, what doesn't work, that's basically the topic. All right, let's go around, let's start this right away. Each of you, tell us about where you grew up and where you live right now, describe the environment you grew up in, and how you interacted with it. Danny, let's start with you. You seem to have an interesting childhood. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I was about to say, Vishra, that's that's the where you grew up is not a linear question for me. Um, so in the sense I guess my first experience with I guess the growing up was in Ohio. Uh, typical suburb type living, car driven, you know, cul-de-sac, very nice, clean cut lawns, uh the houses look exactly the same, but it was very nice. Then just a couple of years after that, so four years after living there. I moved to Geneva, Switzerland, and that's where I grew up, I would say. Spent eight years there. And so that was a big shift. Uh so I I, I, I would say I have a good mix between, you know, a very transit oriented city living and more suburban living. Um but I've I, I would say I'm more of a city dweller. That you know, after then moving to the Netherlands, that's been pretty much it for me.
0: Got it. And and how about you, Archie?
2: Yeah, so Again, my kind of growing up story is a little bit bit complicated, definitely not linear, but I was born in the UK and grew up there for the first nine years uh, of my life. Uh, Very much sort of small town UK, kind of suburbs on the edge of cities. Uh, So just outside Liverpool for me, uh, on the Wirral. Uh, Very few people will know where that is, but that's kind of home. And then I moved to Vancouver for a bit, but again, uh, suburbs on the edge of Vancouver. And then I'll be back here. Uh, and then now I'm with Yveshwar in Montreal so I've had experience in cities I've had experience out of cities uh, places with public transport um, places that need to deliberately think about their green space but also places where you know where I am currently there's, there's fields everywhere they don't need to think about it that is just the natural landscape so yeah definitely a diverse range of of places to grow up with regards to what we're going to talk about today
0: you also grew up in in my opinion what is one of the most beautiful places in the world uh, in squamish yes
2: 100
0: which which is really lucky
2: yeah no i've been i've been super super lucky uh vancouver squamish the whole sea to sky corridor uh I've, I've sort of i've seen a lot when it comes to places where i've grown up definitely definitely a very different place to where i am now
3: i can definitely relate to a lot of your experiences. I mean, I grew up in a post-Soviet apartment complex, but there were there were a lot of green spaces around it. Uh, there was this huge stadium in front of our apartment, so you could always take walks there or run if you wanted to. Then uh, when I finished middle school sometime around that, we moved to the suburbs. We moved to... Literally the middle of the forest, kind of. I mean, it's a neighborhood with other uh, homes around it, but it definitely highly improved my quality of life uh, moving here. And then I moved to the Netherlands to study and I live in a student house. So that's also like a huge change. And um, it really feels different. And that's what I I think I want to talk about, how our environment relates to the quality of our life.
0: Yeah, I guess... In Lithuania, you kind of grew up in one of those classic Grimm's fairy tales, little Eastern European forest houses from Hansel and Gretel or whatever.
3: I mean, I wish that that was the popular image of Lithuania, but (laughs) (laughs) I've had both, both the post-Soviet and both the little forest imagery.
0: The beauty and the beast, if you will. I am from Winnipeg, which is a very car-driven, um, suburb-centric sort of city, um, it is definitely a city in the traditional sense. We have a transit system. Uh, it's filled with people that might knife you. Um, but overall, I would say that the city and the downtown of the city um, are, are, are different places. In that a lot of people that live within the municipally defined bounds of Winnipeg do not spend any time downtown. Or they might go downtown Occasionally to work or catch a concert or watch a sports game and then quickly rush back to their, uh, suburban homes, which is technically still within the city, but definitely a traditional North American, uh, suburb. But since moving to Montreal, uh, I would say that that has been a completely eye-opening experience in what a city and a downtown can be. And from what I've heard, I, I, I haven't been to Europe, um... In any significant capacity, but from what I've heard, it's very similar to Europe in that it has solid transit infrastructure. Um, it has a commitment to bike lanes and, and bike accessibility. I bike pretty much everywhere now, um, and yeah, that's it's it's really changed my experience as a city. And I know that this is a trending topic. I mean, the two of you live in the Netherlands, like. What's the deal with bikes? What do you think of What do you think of bikes as like a meaningful way to to get around? Cuz I have mixed feelings on this.
3: Yeah, I mean, I could begin, I guess. Yeah, okay. I could give a little history on how the Netherlands came to be what it is because I think that in Lithuania even we do have I would say really good public transport and it's really easy if you live in the bounds of the city to get around anywhere, but there's just a culture of cars like it is uh, prestige to have a car. And if you have multiple cars in the family, you're well off. And um, yeah, I mean, even though we didn't really need to, I remember having cars from when I was little in my family and getting around with cars, even though I could get around with buses. Uh, But the Netherlands, I feel like had a different culture, especially after the Second World, World War, they noticed how cars were causing a lot of, road accidents and a lot of deaths which really shook up society more than I guess other country societies and also they noticed the environmental damage that cars give um also placed a huge emphasis on it as opposed to other countries and societies so that's I guess how it kind of came to be uh, and the infrastructure was built for bikes and the culture of bikes prospered but I personally love it. I think it makes the Netherlands one of the healthiest countries in the world. Sometimes in the winter they definitely overdo it, especially if the bikes are uh, if the bike lanes are like icy. Yeah, that's a bit overdoing it for me, but I think it's great. What do you think, Danny?
1: Yeah, Milda, you're right. The Dutch, they're troopers on their bikes. For sure, there's actually uh, just Archie and Vishra. I Milda, I don't even know if you know this or any listener But the Netherlands hosts this uh, sport, which is one of a kind, in which at one day of the year, and where it gets very windy, uh, a group of people of all ages, wealth groups from all different parts of the Netherlands, go to a stretch of land and race against the wind while biking. It's a sport, and they time it, and it's filmed, and it's televised nationally. Anyway, fun fact. But I think that sort of describes, I guess, the culture of bikes in the Netherlands. And as Milda very correctly pointed out, in the 1970s, really, there was this push against cars. Uh, If you look at pictures of Amsterdam in the 1970s, I don't think that people today could even recognize the city. It was overrun, overbearing. Traffic was disastrous. And you're right. There was this movement um, in the 70s in which cars were killing so many children especially, that there was a very massive political rhetoric to shift against that. And one of the biggest examples that I'll bring here just to complete the history circle for the Netherlands and why it's so important, in Amsterdam in the 1960s, I think the late 60s, an American automotive developer, a guy who worked with Henry Ford and uh, obviously his subsequent uh, officers in GM, so those who built the highway system in the United States, uh, proposed a new transit system for Amsterdam that revolved around highways and if you look at the maps the central canals of Amsterdam would have been bulldozed and leveled to create highway entrances that would pass through the city. People who looked at these plans that, because the city was ready to go ahead with this. It had the money, it had the funding, it, this was going to bring an economic boom like it did everywhere in the U.S. We can't forget that the highway system fundamentally changed the U.S. economically, but. People resisted and the Dutch said, no, I value my quality of life. So to answer your question, Vishra, in the Netherlands, biking is not just viewed as a sport or a thing that children do, despite the Netherlands having the happiest children in the world and a large part of that being to the independence of biking. But it's it's a mode of transport. Bikes come in all shapes and sizes, not just the things you see on TV, Uh, you know, of kids playing with a little bell and a helmet. People ride bikes here. You know, They transport stuff. They transport kids. Parents in Amsterdam replace cars with bikes. It's, it's a method of moving around in the most convenient manner. So for me, that's what bikes are.
0: Go ahead, Archie.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I, I've got some family over in Amsterdam, and so I spend a lot of time over there. Um, definitely, just personally, noticeably happier when I'm moving around in a city on a bike. Uh, a couple years back, Uh, my brother and my dad we did a trip across the netherlands and back uh bike packing and i think that highlighted an interesting thing about the netherlands and maybe why it's been so successful in this is of course the geography it's so flat right when you're on a bike you're not pushing yourself up a hill or down a hill particularly often and i think you know there is a little bit of a disparity as to what countries what cities are able to do this if you look at montreal um you've been to the little shoebox that i was living in for the past year definitely a hike up a hill you you wouldn't be cycling up and down to and from there every day and if you if you were then then good on you so yeah i agree bikes are definitely a way of moving around i mean currently i'm i'm unable to drive here so i've been on the bike getting around but again it's been a little bit limiting in that when i'm thinking of where i'm going i'm thinking about the hills and whatever and so i think you know it's definitely interesting the Economic and social benefits that that cycling uh, has afforded Amsterdam and, and various other cities in the Netherlands. How, depend that, how dependent that is on something that's so unchangeable as geography, right? We can't just manufacture ourselves, you know, a flat Montreal. Um, and so, yeah, I just think it, it's, it's definitely an interesting, interesting, a beneficial thing that the Netherlands has, but of course, isn't isn't available to everyone. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know what? I was actually. I'm in complete agreement with you on that, Archie. Um, I was actually just thinking about how, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of bikes. I, As Archie knows, I've got my Da Vinci Copenhagen cycle that I take literally everywhere as soon as the snow's melted. I have
2: never heard the end of this bike. It's, it's a
0: doing very doing sick bike, guys. If you, if you looked at it, it's a very nice bike. Its front wheel just got stolen, so I'm, <laughs> I'm working on replacing that. I digress. <laughs> Let's continue on this bike conversation. I think that bikes are great, but they are fairly limiting, and I think that these, the people that push for, for bikes everywhere are honestly a bit of a cult, in my opinion. I'm not biking in Montreal in minus 25. That's not...
2: You're part of this cult. I, I'm not... I'm, you, are, <laughs> you, you are a card-holding member of this cult.
0: I, <laughs> I think that gives me more validity to speak on the cultiness of Advocates for Bikes, because I am a cyclist, and I love biking, and I don't stop talking about how much I love biking. It's it's a bit of a... I mean, once the winter comes here, you think Amsterdam winters are bad, guys. Wait until you get to Montreal. Wait until you get to, to Winnipeg, any other city in, in Canada. It's, it's brutal. It's tough to bike in the Netherlands in winter. I'll grant you that. It's impossible to bike in the winter in Canada. And... You know, like Archie meant, the, the hills and things like that. Not to mention, um, for me as a musician, I really miss having my car. Um, I, I need to carry my gear everywhere. I need to transport things. I need to unload things. Try taking that on a bike. Try taking a giant guitar a giant amp that weighs 45 pounds or something like that on a bike. I do think that we are over-reliant as a society on cars. Absolutely. I think that we should encourage active transportation. It certainly makes me feel better when I'm biking 15 minutes to school than when I'm walking 15... Sorry, than when I'm driving 15 minutes to school. That definitely feels better. It feels like I'm doing something active. But I do think that cities should not be designed so that cars are excluded from them. I think that cars are an important part of a city's transit ecosystem.
1: I just wanted to jump in here because... um the points that you raise are so valid. Like, I can, I, I see that. Um, Thanks, yeah. Danny. And I agree in saying that, this, especially now, like I would say 2022, 2023, even a couple of years ago, okay, biking has become a serious cult, both offline and online. I mean, those who want it are like hardline, we're doing this. And I also discourage this type of behavior because it creates a very big juxtaposition between those who drive and those who don't. And it, it, I mean, look, it, it, we, the European Union, Europe is also very divided on this. In France, cyclists are seen as an invader of your road. And that's in a country which has pretty decent public transit. But the point I wanna make here, um, and where I wanna sort of and diverge from just the biking idea of the urbanist idea or the urbanist concept is that in the Netherlands, biking only makes up one third of transit journeys. That's actually not a lot. A lot of people in the Netherlands still drive a significant amount and to work. But this correlates with a statistic that in the U.S. around 46% of trips, if I'm not wrong, are less than, you know, five miles, which is nothing five to three miles. And if you look at how the Netherlands works is there is a bigger integration between the different modules of transportation that one may choose. So in that sense, if I want to, for example, go to the airport, I don't bike from the Hague to Schiphol. That's ridiculous. I bike to the train station with my luggage on it, you know, and you can transport it because in the Netherlands, they've, des- they've designed it. and your, your musician problem, uh, Vishwa, is actually very noticeable. I didn't even think about that to the specifics that you have. What instrument do you play? Just if I may ask.
0: I, I play guitar.
1: Okay, yeah. But I
0: play electric guitar, so I need to transport a bunch you of
1: You need to transport amp and stuff like that.
0: Yeah. In the Netherlands, they have
1: this pretty cool invention called the buckfeets, which is like... It, it translates to box bike. And, I mean, these are typically e-bikes that are amped up, and they have a lot of storage space on them. And the idea, in that sense... It, I, I'm kind of going off all over the place. But the idea here is that in the Netherlands, they've developed solutions for... I would say those problems, especially living in Amsterdam, I see people transporting way too many things on bikes in a way that almost looks comfortable. But I'm not saying that cars are not sometimes the most effective way to transit something. It's why we use them. It's why we have vans. Uh, it's why we you know, have space in our cars. That's completely normal. But the, just the point I'll end with and then I'll pass it to Milda is that. In the Netherlands, and I think what's made this transit system so successful, is that the Dutch government put such an active role in combining bicycles with trains. And if you look at the proposals that are going through the European Union right now, um, citizens that have elected MPs to the European Parliament, so these MPs are starting to talk about greater transit integration amongst the European Union. So it's saying, how can we combine the modes of transit? Um, Because I think that is what creates the most powerful urban system into basically say, okay, it's not a war against cars. Let's be clear. We like, that's, I don't think that's what we need to be achieving, but it's basically allowing the freedom to not to have to drive wherever you are. Right. Um, because that unfortunately is the situation in a lot of places, but Milda to you.
3: Yeah, I, I really agree with you. And I think it's crucial that we don't only have bikes, but we also have a great bus tram and metro system and the way that cities are built very consciously grocery stores comparably for example are very small in the netherlands like if you live in the hague where we live almost all grocery stores around you which usually they're like five minutes by foot um are small you don't have to drive to a big grocery store to do your, like, weekly shopping and then drive back home with a lot of the bags of groceries. They consciously think of this, so you wouldn't have to take your car, even you wouldn't have to take a bus or a tram or a bike, you would just walk to the store. Whereas in Lithuania, I think, you do, I mean, you do have to drive um, with either public transport or your car to the grocery store because it's further away And as well, because you need to carry a lot and it's simply nonsensical for you to do that uh, without transport. So it's just a way of restructuring cities to make sense for people. If there's no other point, I wanted to talk about the fact that every time you leave your house, you end up spending about 30 to 40 euros or dollars for you guys. It's just like... Especially in the summer, you feel like you cannot go out without spending money. And the pure fact of living means that you have to be in a private space where you spend money. So let's talk about communal spaces for a minute. What do y'all think? Is this a... Is this
0: a where
3: did you pull this stat
0: out? I, I don't spend 30 to $40 every time I leave my house.
3: <laughs> I mean...
0: Maybe you have a spending problem, Milda. <laughs> I has
1: be expensive, but... It's just put some light on what Milda's talking about. I think in the sense, like when I lived in Ohio, like all I I do remember my cul-de-sac very, very well. If you want to know, it was called Goldfish Lane. Uh, By the way, it was in Cincinnati, but that was a two and a half hour drive from Cincinnati. It was still in Cincinnati, but that's how far it was. Um, Yeah. And in that type of living. So when I talk about the freedom to not to have to drive, okay, in that community, you have a car or you don't move. Like it's, it's, it's pretty bipolar there. And one just point I want to bring to light in this scenario about communal living and this type of stuff. Okay. So Milda, what does not allow communal living living? Okay. Well in the United States and in North America, in, in a lot of places, building closer, tight knit, multi-use housing, apartments, small stores is illegal. Like it's not allowed. you you can't. You can't even get permits for this if you wanted to. Um, if visual do you have a thought on this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm against these sort of zoning laws for like purely capitalist reasons, libertarian yeah. reasons. <laughs> it has nothing to do with. Co- I mean, obviously the quality of life considerations are there, but I just find it ridiculous that we let neighborhood watch boards dictate what building goes up. If you buy the property, you can do whatever the hell you want with it. At least that's where I'm at philosophically. It also happens to improve <laughs> the lives of other people. I'm sure Archie's in the same boat here.
2: Actually, actually not quite. Um, I've been very into kind of the connection between a town or a city's aesthetics and the kind of social outcomes that, that town sees. And I don't think uh it's one of the reasons I love the Netherlands so much, but I don't think giving everyone the absolute right to do whatever they want with the land that they own um, is necessarily conducive to that. I mean, if if you think about it, okay, you can do whatever you want with the stuff that you own, yes. Um, we should limit the, externality, the negative externalities that that has on other people. Probably yes, right? Okay, well, if I build a building that is just objectively if we had an objective measure of ugliness, it was objectively really, really ugly, well, the upset that, that causes to other people is a negative externality. So it still does fit with this idea of, like, you shouldn't have... You shouldn't be allowed to impose externalities on other people. I think course there are economic benefits to kind of maybe relaxing zoning laws. And- I
0: think that the externality for, oh, shoot, that's an ugly building, I don't want to look at that, is, 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 not, is so small that it's not even worth considering.
2: Is it, though? Because... If you think about it, okay. Let's say you live in an, in a, in a neighborhood where everything, where there is very very little consideration given to the aesthetics of the buildings. There's a lot less people, consciously or subconsciously, will assign a lot less value to the place where they live because it's not seen as something that needs to be maintained. Because even if we maintain it, it's going to stay ugly. Therefore, there's less care that needs to be taken to the to the to the environment in which you, you live, and therefore there's less you need to do to maintain it like you the don't, leaps of logic if you, if you, hang here, on this, a second you
0: know these are some leaps of logic here
2: they're not they're not if you go to I don't know a city centre let's say in Amsterdam where the um, the Van Gogh Museum is and the, and the Rijksmuseum and that kind what of square if, that's the one um, it's a very clean place right why because it's it's a it's a, it's a pretty place it's a beautiful place you shouldn't want to mess that place up. If you go to some of the most deprived neighbourhoods here in Liverpool.
0: Yeah, Paris is a very pretty place, and from all accounts, it smells like piss. Right.
2: But doesn't that. that people complain about that. Um, but no one complains about the poor neighbourhoods in Liverpool being dirty. Why do we complain about Paris being dirty? Because it's beautiful. It's something that shouldn't be dirty. At least people have made this connection between something being beautiful and it should be maintained, right? Before maintaining something, you have to think to yourself: this should be maintained. So at least people do that with Paris. I
0: will concede. I will concede you some on like sort of like you know historical buildings ought to be preserved, Um, historical areas that you know have a rich history. For example, Old Port in Montreal, very old neighborhood of Montreal. Those buildings should be preserved just for you know our country's historical reasons. But not every neighborhood is that. Right. You know what you know what this sounds like? This is this is the same logic that those Karen's at the homeowners association in Ohio suburbs use when they talk about how this person should be kicked out of the neighborhood or issued a fine for not trimming their lawn. It's my lawn. I can do whatever I want with it. In a public space, sure. It should be treated with dignity. Should be treated with some sort of respect. But if I build a building, if I build a tall skyscraper that houses 1000 people, but ugly, super tall skyscraper that provides affordable housing to a thousand people, ruins neighborhoods aesthetics, a beautiful neighborhood, one but ugly building, but provides low cost housing. I have no problem with that. The negative externality. They've
2: done that on the edges of most cities. You see these big high rise affordable buildings and look at the social outcomes in those neighborhoods. They're not very good. And I'm not saying you shouldn't build affordable housing. Of course you should. But there should be some consideration given to the aesthetics of those places so that people have to care about them.
0: I, and- I, I, I disagree. I disagree with this wholeheartedly.
2: Well, this is the thing. There was there was there was a survey done that said that support for traditional design and building is highest among lowest income groups, which is a vital. This I'm quoting from Roger Scruton here, uh, a vital finding that surely refutes the view popular among modernist architects that the objection to their work comes merely from middle class NIMBYs, which is the Karens that you were just talking about. If I can interject,
0: go if, ahead,
1: Danny. I'm I, because this is a really interesting topic. It, it's on the urbanism thing but it's that we're now even kind of bridging the gap between that and many others which is what urbanism is that's why i love it so much it's so divergent. this is a uniquely western problem like what we're talking about right now and about living spaces i had a talk with my father about this and i i was in at that point i was in my raging pro-urbanism pro-beauty pro-public spending like the most left i've ever felt in my life and my dad said You know, in Pakistan, they don't give a crap. Like, if you have a car, you're awesome. And that's about it. Like, people are trying to get by. And I think the really interesting thing is, obviously, we see very, obviously, beautiful and historic places in Japan and Southeast Asia. But the majority of the world is still in a state where this aesthetic purpose hasn't reached a fulfillment yet. So when we talk about aesthetic urbanism, like you talk about, Archie, which I'm in agreement like because I I right now I'm in Spain and in Spain we had a uniquely bad problem in the 1970s where we got rich and we built so much affordable housing but at the like the it's the ugliest worst stuff you've ever looked at and Spaniards hate it like I mean it's horrible the the beautiful old stuff is being preserved brilliantly like it is in France but they allowed all this sprawl to happen and people don't like it so I agree spaces do impact the well being of the people being there but for many people in the world that isn't something to be considered and if we talk about urbanism and the trade-offs that one must make for a lot of people having access to a park like i'll tell you a neighborhood in amsterdam for example um it's called amstelfein it's not a low income neighborhood in the whatsoever but it is a large indian diaspora that don't make as much as the ones living in the city center that's obvious it's a suburban almost and there is ugly social housing there but it's combined with very effective green space use of public transit in trams and buses and bikes and when i walk around these neighborhoods compared to what i would say knowing about my eastern european friends where some of this may be absent especially in the good green spaces those that are well kept and that's public spending you do see a difference and i think that's a good differentiator but i think in the sense of the pure building so the architectural part of this it's super like that's a naively western consideration Because so many places in the world would rather just import cheaper materials at a worse environmental cost to build the housing or else people don't live. And I think that's a very interesting one. I would love to hear what you guys think.
3: I think that it would be interesting to talk about with a person who really studies how architecture like affects people's feelings and emotions. Because I mean... I know that whenever we walk in a hospital, we feel iffy. Like, the architecture, the interior of a hospital creeps me out. I don't like being in hospitals. Same as if you walk into probably a post-Soviet home. It's not very nice. It's moldy, to be honest. It's not nice to live in, especially during COVID. I'm so happy I didn't live there. Because honestly, I wouldn't have much will to live in such a flat. So I do think that aesthetics matter. Uh, But if we look at studies, I mean... It is true that properties which are aesthetically beautiful or have more green space that is of high quality tend to be more expensive, as you mentioned, Danny. So it's really a trade-off that we we need to have, but I think that it's important.
2: I feel like I've, I've said a lot and been controversial here, but so I'll, let, I'll let someone else go and gather my thoughts
1: no, actually Archie i and Vishwa, I really loved that this, the discussion that you had just previously. That was absolutely fantastic. That was a unique representation of I think the main problem in de- developing like urban urban development in most cities is that we are dealing with the lives of so many people, and that directly impacts like the right now you know de- like it, just the simple act of changing where you're allowed to build a supermarket can change the lives of those living in a neighborhood. And whether or not that's a hundred people, whether or not it's 50, whether or not it's 150,000, those are all numbers of people that depend on the system of transit, no matter what's car, bike, train, bus, tram, boat. Um, Guy is a little city in the little town that goes around by boat. Anyways, um, little fun fact, but I think it's it, it, like, If I look at it from what we talk about the urbanist perspective and when we look at, right, some of the questions that we wrote here, it's very hard to differentiate between, right, what should be done and what can be done with the materials and the resources and the political, political will is so important here. In the United States, there isn't any. And the profiteers that make the money off of still extending lanes on a highway to create a 16-lay highway in Texas, like, uh, that's a different thing. But it's the incentive structure that isn't there to change it. The problems are different everywhere when we come to urban development, and it's very hard to find a one-size-fits-all solution here. And that's why I think makes the problem so unique in the sense that the Dutch, and I, I will talk against them in this sense, if you listen to a Dutch person, especially with the transit, those like oh, you know, this could be anywhere, you know, we did it, you can do it too. As you mentioned, some places are colder, that's hard, right? Places are hilly, despite e-bikes, you know, being a 10th of the cost of what, you know, a bike would be, or a car would be to go up hilly, uh, hilly places. Um, but that, that's just a, you know, an extra to that. But in the sense, you know, there are real challenges to urbanism. But for me, I think, especially as a student, as a university student, wrapping it back, there are two things I want to focus on. And then I hand it off. Um, so the quality of life, of being happy. I, like you said, Archie, just, yeah, you know, 20 minutes ago, you did not feel a unique happiness than you did than when you biked around Amsterdam. And I feel that every time I get on the bike. It's just nice. And I think that's something that should be taken into consideration. I'm not saying that Okay, like, like what uh, Vishwa said, not everything needs to be active transit. We don't need to like, abolish all the cars. That, like, driving is also fun. Um, but it's just that when that's the only option, that's troubling. This is my perspective, for me. The second is the environmental cost. Um, cities produce a lot of greenhouse emissions, but not as much as single-family housing. So if I look at greenhouse emissions per household, the ones who live the furthest outside the cities just emit the most and it's disproportionately high in North America, like disproportionately high. Um, and it, even if they own an EV, it won't change much because the amount of driving that you're still going to do is quite severe. And considering the types of travel that you undertake, it can be, it can take a toll. So for me, creating a a good transit system, you creating nice green spaces focusing on the aesthetics it's all important but i can't but help feel that that's some sort of idealistic goal that we can never get to
0: Agreed. these are sort of like side conversations that (laughs) that are interesting but i agree um we shouldn't forget that they're dominated by a far more important discussion around the way that they're structured and the impacts and the real impact not just aesthetic impacts on Artie's poor eyes Well, okay,
2: given this is an audio-only episode, that was a reference to the fact that I wear glasses. It was um, not. (laughs) (laughs) um, Just to tie up what I was saying before, obviously, Danny, you bring up rightly, this might be a uniquely Western problem if your dad was saying that, you know, if you own a car, you're the guy, and it doesn't really matter whether your house is aesthetic or not, because there, there are other issues to deal with. Yes, that's true. But if we if we take it as a uniquely Western problem, well, the standard of living in Western countries, on average, is a lot higher than, than in non-Western countries. That's why we have th- these terms, uh, first world, third world countries, whatever. Yes, those terms might be outdated, but in general, they're still in use, and people tend to know what we're referring to. So, in a third world country, you give someone a car, or you give someone a house that, that in a first world country might be considered basic and and, uh, and of poor quality and affordable housing, etc., to them it's something they can be proud of and they can take care of and they can use to improve their life and it's an objectively better thing than they had before when they didn't have that thing. I think that's, that's a fair statement. And if you give someone a house that is aesthetically pleasing in a Western country, it gives them something that they can be proud of and they can u- they can maintain and they can use to improve their life. That's also true. And so, yes, it's a uniquely Western problem, but what I I suppose I'm saying is, is that if aesthetically pleasing building is better than any old building with no regard to its aesthetics, and that we value aesthetics, then it's something to work towards, and therefore there should be con- some consideration given to it. And back to what Vishwa was saying before, therefore we shouldn't just allow everyone to do whatever they want with their properties, because I don't think enough people give consideration to that, because as Vishwa was saying, it sounds like a side conversation. I just disagree that it is. Vishwa, I hope there weren't too many leaps of logic there. But I just wanted to tie up what I was saying before.
0: It's it's not that there are leaps of logic. I just think that it comes down to a, a fundamental disagreement over over what is important and what is uh, uh, and what is valued. I just think that a lot of people use the talking points of neighborhood aesthetics to... Promote, like Danny said, single family housing and exclusionary zoning. Things that I disagree with and I think are bad. One of the big problems with inequality is that it perpetuates if you're in areas that are only surrounded by your own socioeconomic class, and mixed income neighborhoods should be encouraged. And exclusionary zoning policies um, that use this term, neighborhood aesthetics, often just perpetuate that inequality and the lack of upward social mobility among classes.
3: To go back uh, about Archie's and Vishva's points though, I see your both of your points and like I really agree with Vishva as well. Yes. You know, my policies. But talking about Archie's points, whenever I pass like a McDonald's that's in this very mm. old nice like vintage building Yo. in The Hague, mm. I'm like what and who allowed this? <laughs> who allowed this McDonald's to be in this nice-ass building? A
1: lot of ching McDonald's is the biggest real estate company in the world. That's a, that's a fact That's just a crazy thing. McDonald's has such a big bargaining chip when it comes to locations. Anyways, I guess that was right.
2: I don't know. I'd, I'd rather they inhabited that building than created their own ugly one. Just just my two cents. No,
0: no nah, this is true. <laughs> it's true. Alright, okay. The final topic of today is green spaces. Danny, you, you just can't seem to wait to talk about this. I remember when we were discussing topics, Danny was like, we really need to talk about green spaces, guys. Danny...
1: Okay, they're very important. Um, for city dwellers, for suburban dwellers, for nature dwellers, and I think the latter is the most obvious, um, we are mammals... And we love nature sometimes. I mean, sometimes we get bored of all the things that we built and just love to look at the stuff that had been here way before we have. So that is the premises. Um, When we talk about green spaces, it's not talking about, uh, obviously, a lot of people think of the the very obvious ones like Central Park, Hyde Park, uh, some of the big central parks in Paris. uh, In Europe, I, I, I say that that's quite predominant in terms of how that's used. But green space in the more general sense just talks about tree coverage and how much actually of that color are you seeing in your day-to-day in the streets that you live in. So if I bring the topic back to uh, Southeast Asia, if I look at Pakistan, for example, not a priority. Ain't no one thinking about planting any trees. Never. There's no shade coverage, nothing. Um, But green spaces are becoming a uniquely important Topic because of carbon capture and air quality indexes in cities that are becoming increasingly large. I I know that in New York, obviously, the worst air quality in the world was inhibited by wildfires, but it stemmed quite a strong response amongst urbanists in green spaces, and it actually intaked an upkeep uh, for more trees to be planted in Manhattan. And the idea is not only that green spaces are just Nice. Like we've talked about, urbanism should not be something at least, it, like we say in the Western uh, MEDC world, that has the resources, the will, and the can-do attitude to really put this stuff together. But it's also, you know, that that type of investment makes people here happy. That's it's a very simple thing. It should be. It should be to make the individual quality of life better. The second really just has to do with health. Um, physical and mental well-being, apart from mental, excuse me. But parks encourage healthier lifestyles. That's a real trend. People go running in parks. Like Milda, you said you had that stadium that was right next to your place um, in Lithuania. And even in Eastern Bloc countries, and I, I, I will say in Pakistan, we also have parks. But it's the idea that they encourage a very active style of life. And the push for them has become ubiquitous with creating sustainable living just because of all the points I mentioned.
3: And I think that parks and green spaces that are not about like coverage, but about just the community coming together into one space, not in a space where you have to spend money to buy drinks, food, other entertainment, but just in a space that you walk around and have a run and talk to your neighbors. I think that is so important and a lot of people are so isolated in their homes all the time, and don't have that space, that third space that's not their home and that not their work to come to. So I think also because of that, it's extremely important.
2: I oh, was just kind of maybe a stimulating question here, because this is very much Danny's wheelhouse and, and not mine, and probably Mildred's more so than me as well. Uh, do you think residents of cities are entitled to? nearby green space? Do you think that should be something that authorities push as it is worse on the part of, say, a developer if it's not accessible to people, or should it be incentivized, etc.? You know?
1: Interesting that you bring that up, Archie, um, because Norway this year, uh, the city government of Oslo, has just mandated, made a public mandate for all real estate developers in, this, in, the, in the municipal city of Oslo. Every resident has to be within five-minute walking distance of a park. That was one of a list of many things that a citizen had to be able to access. So especially in the Nordics, where now the, the personal individualistic quality of life is like a top of the agenda point, yeah, for sure, 100%. It, it, I saw it when I went to Oslo. I was like, whoa, there's green everywhere in this kind of booming financial and industrial city. It's, there's a lot. I was like, it's so green and it feels nice. So that's so interesting because it's going to depend on how much will and need do you want. In some countries, it seems so redundant to say we need a park when we need to start building factories because we're not productive enough. You know, like it has to I think it, it, it depends a lot on what is being prioritized in the social fabric, because in Amsterdam, the push to build green spaces has been in Paris. I sent you guys this link. But the entire push to redesign Paris by 2023 is to put, like, tons of new green spaces. And that's to make a public mandate. You know, Paris wants to also move to mandating green spaces for citizens for different reasons. So there's a push, but at this point, I can't say that that's, like, a, a requirement. Just because I see that there's so many varying perspectives and needs depending on where you live and what type of city you live in.
0: That is an excellent nuance point I, I i completely agree i I'm a big fan of the parks um here in Montreal and even in Winnipeg to to an extent has made a commitment to having green spaces and trees everywhere and, and and there's yeah there's no lie there's not much to be said here. it makes you feel good and it's nice to have but like Danny said um it depends on what your priorities of the city are. I think that the term mandating green space is a bit weird because i mean. Of course the city the city government can sort of build whatever they please with the land that's theirs. I don't understand how you how you mandate a, a green space
1: um it has to do with that some parks are privately developed like for it's really costly for it's really costly for most cities to like say okay like in Central Park it was not public. that was a private public investment because no government could have that much useless land right? paid at the end of the day in New York every square inch is dollars Yeah, Yeah, it's it's capital inflow so for cities um, they need to be able to work with people with capital that means private equity to come in and to establish guidelines in that sense like they did in Oslo is going to allow realtors and developers to navigate that bottom standard that they have because in Oslo they can't afford to, like even in a city like Oslo, you have to, there's so much welfare other than public spaces that are, again, parks return nothing. As Milda said, one great thing about parks is that you can just go without paying for anything. That's great. But from a city perspective, that means no money for space that we built using money. So in that sense, you need to work with private firms to make these projects work. And by defining the standards, you can help creating that sort of minimum baseline.
3: I think that just a lot of the social issues of uh, cities like homelessness prevent these uh, publicly accessible spaces from being developed. And even having more seating in parks or around the city, having more free toilets, having more drinking fountains, um, those efforts are stopped by the variety of social issues like homelessness that cities have and also the fact that some parks are gated and only like some people from a rich community can access those parks that's also a a bit debatable from my perspective
2: what if so again this isn't my wheelhouse so i'll just i'll just stay asking the questions i suppose um again so you can mandate green space and and you can carve out large areas of a city where people can't live so that the people who do live there have access to the space that makes them happy and they can go for a run. Whatever. What do you say to those people who wanted to move to the city to improve their life, but they can't because there's no housing, yet there's all this space? And I'm not arguing a point here. I, I agree with everything that's been said. Parks are brilliant. They should definitely exist and, and be allowed to proliferate. But it is a thing that people bring up. So, so what, do you, what do you say to these people?
0: Hmm.
2: Okay.
1: That's so interesting because that's like the core urbanist problem, man. That's like literally the core urbanist problem. It's like, hey, we need to build public spaces. But man, if we could just throw everybody and 40 block, you yeah, a 40 story housing unit and put that everywhere, we'd solve the housing crisis. Yeah, but everyone would be... I,
2: I, I would say that, that given the pandemic and given this kind of lack of occupancy of commercial space in downtown um, areas that that presents an opportunity because you've got these like, newly empty spaces which definitely won't become parks right um, which is kind of an interesting point again I'm, I don't really have a point to argue here I just given that you guys know a lot more about this than I do it'd be interesting to hear
3: I, I know that some people right now are even moving into schools or abandoned, I mean, abandoned schools or hospitals as to get cheaper um, places to live. But honestly, from my perspective, I would uh, focus more on the political will to, to go out of the city, to focus on rural areas and the people that are living there, the quality of education there and everything else. I would focus more on expanding.
1: Archie, this is where I'm going to bring in my favorite term. I brought it up over once mixed use zoning, like, Oh my God, it's, that, that, it's awesome for this reason. In Amsterdam, if you look at a street a hundred years ago, or, I'm sorry, 50 years ago, like the shops used to be houses and some of the houses are shops and some of the you, things move around as the demand is shifting, how the supply reacts in that particular neighborhood. But to solve the problem that you brought up, the the question that you said, you know, we have unused space. It's good for people. But what do we do if more people want to move in? That's where cities start to grow. And unfortunately, the way that the United States has has really done that is they've gone really, really far into, okay, how cheap can we build it? How fast can we build it? How fast can we fulfill the demand, right? In L.A., we need more people to move to L.A. Let's just build a crap ton of single-family housing. And guess what? People are housed. For the most part, I should say, L.A. is a massive homeless problem that we haven't addressed. But it, the thing that European cities do well, but it's the, again, it's a system of trade-offs here. European planners tend to take more time designing communal-based living based on small urban centers that connect to wider ones. As I said, the community in Amstelveen, in south of Amsterdam, it's its own thing. And it solved a lot of the housing problems in Amsterdam because that was a lot of unused land that they bought back from farmers, which in a country so dependent on agriculture was a problem anyways. But here, it, again, I hate to bring it up. It's like, it's, it's a nuanced perspective because, you know, if you're looking at it for the cheapness and how much money are you going to make off the land, the American model works the best for the short term. But building mixed-use long-term housing and community-based living so urban centers outside of the main downtown for example where people can go like harlem is a city a little bit outside of amsterdam but a lot of residents would still travel to amsterdam daily with by the way using a car or train Um, so it's really hard in countries that have a lot of space they just tend to fill it up and the the problem is there, then you just waste even more space. In Europe, you just don't have that much space. You have to be careful about it. Um, But here, then it really just does depend on how careful you're gonna be at the problem. You will always have a housing problem, I think, in that sense, Um, because there's always gonna be too much deliberation needed to plan. Can I ask one question to you guys though? Do you guys think like car ownership for you is almost essential for your postgraduate life? as students, right? The wrapping it up as a uni student experience.
0: I would I would say that I I don't think that car ownership for me is like a, a matter of pride, but more of a matter of like utility if I want to get out of the city, if I want to um I, like I said transport my music equipment um you know, things like that. I'd like to have one car maybe when I have a family when I'm older. Um, definitely not in the near term. If I'm in Montreal for a while, I probably will not have a car for the next like five to ten years, I'll say.
3: I'm very similar with Vishwa. I think I don't see myself really settling down um, after graduating, so having a car wouldn't make a lot of sense for me, but in the future, especially if I'm going to move back to Lithuania, it would be quite essential.
2: I would say well it's a classic answer it depends if I was back here where I am now uh, yes I need a car Uh, I just again you live on the outside of a city the transport links aren't great I think that's fairly typical of the UK uh, which we haven't touched on in this podcast but there is a lot to say it's very difficult to get anywhere um, particularly the town that I live in but if I was to live in a city you know day to day in Montreal I don't don't feel pressure to have a car at all Um, when i'm in amsterdam which is semi-frequently don't feel any pressure to have a car at all when i'm down in london again don't feel like i need to drive luckily for me i can't drive because all of the available test dates were after i moved to montreal so kind of a moot point doesn't really matter whether i want a car or not i'm not getting one but yeah i'd say it, it depends where you live i if you're in somewhere like the Netherlands, where you have these kind of satellite cities like Harlem um, into Amsterdam and you can get trains and it doesn't matter too much, then fine. But countries like the UK aren't, aren't built for that. I'm living in a fairly satellite town to Liverpool and Chester and Manchester. You need a car. If, you, if you're going to be going in frequently, you need a car. Even going to see friends for me currently is is pretty difficult. Um, so, yeah, it, it depends on how your country's set up.
0: All right. What a great way to, to wrap up this episode. Danny, I'm, I'm going to take a guess. Actually, you know what? you got to answer your own question, buddy, before we wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring up one last thing, car sharing. No, you're going to keep this to 10 seconds. <laughs> it is.
1: What I'm saying is car... One sentence, one sentence. Car ownership is only essential if I need a car to go to work every day. That's what I'll say. Right. That's the benchmark for me.
0: Okay, got it. It's essential if it's essential.
1: There you go. There you go.
0: (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Archie and and Danny. This was a a great episode. I'm really loving this panel format. And for all our listeners, if you want more of us, make sure to follow us. Um, Make sure to let us know what you think of uh, this new format of episodes. Yeah. See you later.